As we are continuing in our study of the distinctives, and we're looking today at the Lord's Supper, we also get the opportunity to observe the Lord's Supper as we do um, as our rhythm of celebrating the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of the month. So before I start, I uh, just want to say a public thank you to my brother, uh, my friend, Pastor Brandon, for stepping in so faithfully uh, last minute last week, uh, doing a wonderful job as he always does, uh, but very grateful for you, brother, uh, thankful for your service to this body and to our family. Uh, join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. Uh, you can take one of those. It's our gift to you. I'll be teaching from the ESV. Love for you to follow along. Circle, underline, highlight. 1 Corinthians, it's in the New Testament. Uh, if you need help, check your table of contents. Uh, ask somebody beside you. Don't be... Uh, afraid or ashamed of that. <clears throat> but here we're going to look at the Apostle Paul's instruction to the church in Corinth as we seek to grow in our understanding of the Lord's Supper as a church. So let me read 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. Would you hear the words of Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. Verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks, eats and drinks 
without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let us pray and ask the Lord for his help. Father, it is a joy and privilege to be with your people this morning. It is a joy and privilege that we can come together, uh, even that we can hear children's voices, knowing that there is new life, that you have blessed us with that. Father, I pray that each and every person gathered here this morning would leave here different than they walked in, that those who need to be humbled because of pride or arrogance would find the instructions of your word ever so convicting. I pray, Lord, that those that need to be encouraged and strengthened in their walk would find encouragement as they see what Christ has done on their behalf. Father, help us to grow in godliness together. Would you help me to preach your word in a way that brings clarity and truth that it deserves? Father, we ask that what we know not, you would teach us, and what we are not, you would make us, and what we have not, you would give us by your grace, for your glory. And God's people said, amen. So dinner in our home, in the Cash household, is a family event. First, everybody comes together, and we help out in whatever ways that we're able some set the table, some grab drinks for everyone that, is, that are present, uh, some help to bring the food to the table. Then when everything is in place and everyone is seated at the table together, we give thanks, we give praise to the Lord for what he has done and for what is before us. And we really give thanks that we're about to enjoy some good food and fellowship. Uh, one practice that we've started during our family meals, if you've been to our house at dinner, you've likely experienced this, but uh, we go around the table, everyone that's there, and we give just an offering of thanksgiving to God for something that's happened that day. Uh, what this helps us to do is just to, no matter how bad our day has been, we can always find a reason to give thanks. So each person will give something that they're thankful for. We do this when guests are there. We do this when we're just alone, the five of us that live in our house. Sayla's not saying a lot right now about her thankfulness, but we're still working on her. But one of the things that often happens when we have guests and our table is full is our five-year-old Zion, when it's his turn to give thanks, he will look around the table and he'll say, 
I'm thankful our table is full. I'm thankful that there are people that are here enjoying this meal with us. And why is that? Is he really thankful that there won't be a lot of leftovers? Is he really thankful that, hey, there's more people to help clean up uh, this feast? No. See, even at a young age, Zion understands that there's something special that happens when people come together around a meal, fellowship, and doing something that is even more than just eating food. There's something more that happens than just filling one's stomach. It's a special occasion that brings joy and satisfaction because of the fellowship of those at the table, those that are participating in a communal act of dining together. And it is incredible and delightful as a family meal may be in home, there is something that is far superior. There is a meal that is far greater and carries far superior significance. And that is the church's family meal, commonly referred to as the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper far exceeds anything we can humanly produce in the comforts of our home. Maybe you're thinking, like, how in the world does, like, I, I, I've seen our communion pods. I've participated. How in the world does this little stale cracker and a, a sip of juice compare to a feast that maybe you've enjoyed with family? I mean, how can it begin to compare to a table full of delicious food accompanied by wonderful conversation. You know, like, come on, man, are you serious? You're telling me that the Lord suffered, the time that we're together is far greater. Yes, I am serious. My prayer is that through our time today, as we look at this text, we will grow in our understanding and appreciation for the Lord's Supper in ways that will amplify our affections for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave the church this ordinance for his glory and for our good. So what exactly is the Lord's Supper? Well, here's how Article 14 of the New Hampshire Confession of Faith, this is our statement of faith, this is our confession, so those that are members of this church, this is what we agree upon that the Lord's Supper is. Here's what it reads. It's Article 14. It's right after uh, the part about baptism. And then it goes on to say, We believe that the Supper is a symbolic act of obedience, whereby the church members, following earnest self-examination, use bread and the cup in a sacred manner to commemorate together the dying love of Christ. So, once again, in order to be a member of this church, you must agree with that definition. The Lord's Supper is one of two sacraments or ordinances, sometimes, 
used that Jesus gave the church, in which material elements are used as visible signs of something. So that something has happened. Uh, baptism, the sign is what? It's water, right? So that's the visible sign. In the Lord's Supper, there are two signs that are used, the bread and the wine, the juice. It, the wine represents what? The blood of Christ that was shed. The, body is, uh, the, the bread represents the body that was broken. Baptism is a one-time, and you hear us say this in our liturgy, but baptism is a one-time identification, right? So it's a one-time identification, a visible identification of unity to Christ by faith. The Lord's Supper is the ongoing visible identification of unity with Christ by faith. So baptism one time and Lord's Supper on going, something that we rehearse. It's a way that we rehearse the gospel. Now, it's really important to note that neither baptism nor the Lord's Supper is salvific, meaning that people do not become Christians by being baptized, nor do they maintain their standing as Christians by participating in the Lord's Supper. Instead, these signs merely point to something that has already happened. It's important uh, distinction there. Uh, for example, like if you just put on a wedding ring without making vows to a spouse, guess what? You're not married, okay? The ring is a sign of something that has happened. So in the same way, baptism, the Lord's Supper, are signs of something that have happened. So we're going to look at this text, and we're going to walk through this, and I want to give you the context of, of what is going on now that we kind of just get a, a, a quick, and this, this could go on for, for hours, for weeks, that we could be talking about the Lord's Supper. Uh, we're not going to do that um, this morning. But so I'm not going to, we won't cover every single detail. I'm not going to dot every I, cross every T. But I think this passage is very helpful for us to uh, look at some different things that uh, give us some, uh, just the understanding, deepen our understanding of what the Lord's Supper is. So context of what's going on here is that uh, the Corinthian church is likely having a meal in home that is paired with the Lord's Supper. Uh, some would call it the love feast, and then they would uh, also accompany that with the Lord's Supper. Likely what's happening here in this text is that uh, someone that is wealthy is op has opened up their home. They've allowed the church to meet there. Uh, they're enjoying this meal that's going on, and then once again, they're having the Lord's Supper combined with it. But what happened in what's going on in the church in Corinth, and if you read First and Second Corinthians, you know that there was a lot of chaos. Paul's given a lot of instruction. He's trying to help them to kind of uh, fix some of the, the problems that's going on that he's heard about in the church. And so here what's happening 
is that the elite, those that were wealthy, there's usually about three class and, uh, classes of people in the culture of first century Christians. You had the elite, the wealthy. You had the middle class, those that probably worked for the wealthy. And then you had slaves, those that would uh, be the ones that were responsible for caring for all of the, the, the details of the house, the home, putting the kids down. And so what would happen is the elite would get there first. They would get to this celebration, and they would enjoy food. They're eating food. They're, they're doing it so much that they're getting full, Paul says, and they're getting a little tipsy. They're, they're drinking a little too much of the wine. So they're abusing the supper in that way, but also what's happening is that they're not leaving room for then those that are middle class, that are coming probably a little bit later, right? The, those that are wealthy, they have a little more money. Their, their jobs allow for a little more freedom. We all know those folks. And then there are some that are more middle class, right? They've got to stick to the nine to five or or six to three, probably, what was happening here. So they're coming a little bit later to this gathering. And, and then you've got, once again, you've got the slaves. And they're the last ones there. Last ones showing up to this celebration, this gathering. They're the last ones. And they have really nothing left. There's not a lot that's going on where they could even participate much. And so, as we look through this text, we're, we're going to really see that Paul's speaking to a, a sense of, of unity, a sense of looking to the needs of others, modeling Christ to others in the Lord's Supper. And as we look at this text, there are six observations that I'm going to make. Six observations that are, kind of serve as means of. The, the Lord's Supper serves as a means of, and then give you the observation. They all end in I-O-N. It'll be one word. And the first one is the Lord's Supper serves as a means of unification. The Lord's Supper serves as a means of unification. Look at what he says in 17 and 18. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. So remember, Paul is kind of walk, walking his way through this letter, and he's, he's giving them some, okay, yes, D.A. Carson calls it the, the yes, but, right? He's saying, you do these things, and, and that's okay, but, so he's giving them some correction. Here, he says, I don't commend anything you're doing. Like, everything you're doing is wrong. And he says, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. 18.4, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. What I want you to notice here, under the heading of unification, is the words, when you come together. When you come together. Notice it is there in 17. Notice it there in 18. Notice it again there in verse 20. Uh, look down a little bit farther, verse 33 and verse 34. When you come 
together. So we see that Paul seems to have in mind here that the church in Corinth will do this when they are what? Together. Together. Not isolated by themselves. Not doing it in a holy corner. So I would say that the normative practice of observance of the Lord's Supper is for the gathered church. It is for means of unification. It isn't an isolated act of private devotion that someone does all by themselves in their home or, or even when you think about it, even when you are with the church. It's not just your private devotion with God. It isn't for marriage ceremonies. It isn't for small groups. It isn't when your friends are in town that you haven't seen in a while. Now, if you've done those things, I'm not saying you're in sin or just think that the normative practice that we see in Scripture is that it's for the local church. Look at the New Hampshire Confession again. Think here with me. We believe a visible church of Christ. So this is the definition of what a church is. So if it's for the gathered church, well, what is the church? Well, the visible church of Christ is a congregation of baptized believers joined together by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel. So it's a group of brothers and sisters that have covenanted together, that have constituted together around a statement of faith and a polity, that this is how we're going to do things. I don't know if two years ago I would have been this strong on this with my understanding of when and where the Lord's Supper should normally take place. I think there's, uh, there can be exceptions for missions and different things, but I think the normative practice is when the church is together. Look back with me real quickly to just kind of further this point to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, probably a page over in your Bible, uh, verses 16 and 17. I'm going to read this for us. Just look here. The cup of blessing that we bless, Paul speaking, right? Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And then look at verse 17. He says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. So here, after Paul really speaks of the vertical participation, or he uses this word uh, koinonia, uh, which really would mean partnership or deep fellowship with Christ, with the cup and the bread, he then concludes with a very practical horizontal implication here. He says that we who are many are one body because we partake of the one bread. There's something that happens together. There's a sign here of togetherness. Uh, Bobby Jameson puts it like this in 
uh, I think in one of his, the short book I think that we have in the back there, he says that baptism identifies one with many, and the Lord's Supper identifies many as one. Think about that. Baptism is joining one to many. The Lord's Supper makes many one. We say, hey, we are a church. We're a visible church. When we observe the Lord's Supper, we're, we're kind of drawing lines. We'll talk about that here in a moment. Of a visible church. We're God's people. We've been called together, saved. We do something. Um, in my studies of Scripture, uh, I have never found or cannot find examples of someone taking, observing the Lord's Supper alone. Um, it seems to be that the Lord's Supper was always uh, with a gathered church, with gathered believers. When Jesus provided the first instructions for the Lord's Supper, he doesn't take the apostles off individually. He, he doesn't just give it to them separately and say, okay, hey, well, you, you do it this way. Or you, he brings them together. He says, hey, you're, you're my people. There's a sign. There's something that's happening. You've got to do it together. Furthermore, one of Paul's major points in this letter to the Corinthians was to rebuke them for not demonstrating unity. It's like you're not unified in what you are doing. And he says the unity that should be found in the church is genuine unity that can only be defined by the regenerate work of God changing hearts and making people one. So I assert that the Lord's Supper is a means of unification of the church. Second, the Lord's Supper is a means of identification. Identification. Look at 19 through 22 here. It says, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. I will not. Remember, just mentioned earlier, early church likely met in homes. They're likely having this love feast, this feast, this gathering. And they're participating in the Lord's Supper. Likely what would happen is first they would break the bread. They would then eat. Then they would drink the wine. They would share the cup. We read here that some, once again, are abusing this time together. They're using this time for their own path to self-satisfaction. They're using this time 
And really, their own motivation in this time is self-serving. They're not thinking of anyone else. They're self-centered in their actions. And Paul tells them that the Lord's Supper is essentially revealing those who are genuine and those who are not. He says there's, there's a division here. There are some that are genuine, that are really showing themselves to observe the supper in ways that are pleasing to the Lord and are also uh, thinking of others. But then there's some that are just bringing their own food to hang out and get drunk. I want you to picture how this is going, right? You know, especially for the lower class. They show up for the good Christian fellowship, enjoying uh, the time of fellowship. And after a long, hard day, and what happens? There's nothing left. And the people they came to hang out with are, are, are drunk. I don't know if you've ever been around drunk people. That's not fun. They're making a mockery of the fellowship that is supposed to be unifying for God's people. So Paul tells them that this misuse is revealing who's genuine because those that are genuine would not treat the supper as their own personal party. They wouldn't elevate their own agenda above the needs of others. Brothers and sisters, the principle presented to us here is that our attitude and disposition towards the Lord's Supper and really fellowship in general is a telling marker to the genuineness of one's faith. The way that we observe our time together, the way that we treat each other, is a tall-tale sign of our genuineness. Oftentimes, Continued self-centeredness, self-preservation, self-exaltation are indicators that one needs to examine themselves to see if they are truly in the faith. If it's always about you, if it's always about what you want and what you think is right, then how in the world will we follow the instructions of Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, where we read, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count yourselves, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of Others, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." As God's people, 
we follow the example of our Savior. And Paul's instruction here to the church in Corinth is that you're not doing it well at the supper. And because your lack of obedience in this is showing them to be non-genuine. The Lord's Supper is a means of identification as we come to the table thinking not just of ourselves, but of others. Number three, the Lord's Supper is a means of commemoration. Commemoration. We see this in verses 23 through 25. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So Paul provides some specific instructions here to the church that he says that he received from the Lord himself. Uh, Most scholars would agree that uh, this was written before the Gospels, so Paul likely first heard it from uh, the other apostles. Maybe Peter told him how it happened, and then the Lord himself actually confirmed what Peter's testimony to Paul was. So now Paul is saying, hey, the Lord actually gave this to me himself. What Paul does here is he points back to Jesus' instructions from the original inauguration of the Lord's Supper to his apostles. So let's think about what Jesus is doing there. First, there's been many, uh, much controversy, probably the most controversy within the church throughout the centuries over what Jesus means when he says, this is my body, which is for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. When, when Jesus puts those words out there, there are really four major views that have really developed throughout church history. Uh, one is uh, the transubstantiation view. That's the Roman Catholic view where they say that the, the uh, wafer, the, the bread, and the wine actually transform. They change into the actual body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. There's a, a change that actually happens in those after the uh, priest would bless them. Uh, we don't agree with that. That is false. There's nowhere in Scripture that would say that. Um, then there's Luther. Luther didn't like transubstantiation, so uh, he came up with consubstantiation. And that teaches that through the Lord's Supper, uh, it's, it's not transformed into the body of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, but he is still present in the actual elements. Uh, He's above, in, and around them. Um, A good uh, uh, illustration that usually points out this view is like a sponge, right? The sponge isn't actually water, but water's in the sponge, and you can pour water out of the sponge, so that would be the uh, Luther's view. We reject that view as well. We don't believe that anything actually changes within the elements when we distribute those little cute cups 
and you pop them open. There's nothing that changes with them. Here's the memorial view. Uh, This is the most widely held view. It's uh, a view that our our elder team, we all agree upon. We agree that this is the view that is is true. Uh, Zwingli taught this view. And basically what he said, he took the words of, of Jesus in remembrance of me and said that it's a memorial, right? So we're remembering something that has happened. Uh, they, they're just, the bread and the wine are simply symbols for us. So they, they show something. And once again, we all agree on that. And I think that we can absolutely say that that is a, a view that we can stand upon by saying that Jesus literally uses those words. He says, do this in remembrance of me. But I personally also included with that view would uh, agree with Calvin's view on it. Uh, This is the spiritual presence of the elements, of Jesus in the elements, when the Lord's Supper happens. And I'm just going to read something for you here, just to make sure I clarify it really well. It says, John Calvin's spiritual presence view affirms that the body of Christ is present in heaven, but doesn't need to come down for believers to partake in it. Rather, through the Holy Spirit, which we all have as Christians, we have fellowship with Christ right here and right now because it is his spirit. Instead of Christ being present in the elements, his spirit lifts us up in his heavenly places to feed on himself. So there's something spiritual that happens that goes a little beyond just a memorial, something that happens within us. And regardless if you're in the spiritual presence camp or not, it is for sure an act of commemoration. We can say that with confidence. If you recall, the Lord's Supper replaced the Passover meal. We've talked about that uh, many times, so I won't belabor uh, that and what the Passover meal was. But in Luke chapter 2, we see in his description and uh, uh, his telling of the Lord's Supper, it says in verse 8, so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. So they're about to observe Passover here. And then in verse 14 and 15, and says, and when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So there was something that Jesus wanted to do here. He wanted to eat the Passover with his followers before he died for them. And just as the Passover meal was a time of remembering their deliverance from slavery in Egypt and a remembrance of God's faithfulness to them, Jesus institutes the new supper so they will remember the new covenant that's about to take place. Saying, there's something that's about to happen. I'm about to die for you. I'm going to give my body and blood for those that I love. So what we can say here is that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are not and we should not be simply going through the motions. We shouldn't just be casual 
about what we are participating in. Christians are literally remembering that Jesus Christ gave his life so that they can live. All that have faith in his substitution. This is why we believe as a church that the Lord's Supper is a time for Christians. And it's only a time for Christians because it's only Christians that can look back and remember. Because it's only Christians that death is applied to. Time for believers to commemorate, to remember what Jesus Christ has done. And beautifully, it is a covenant. The new covenant that God gave to us through the death of his son. And he guaranteed the delivery of his covenant promise when he raised Jesus from the dead. Praise be to God. So Jesus institutes the supper as a time to remember that his sacrifice was the perfect sacrifice the once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of his people, those that believe in Jesus Christ for their forgiveness and follow him as Lord can bank on that sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews puts it like this in chapter uh, 10 of Hebrews. He says in verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool at his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Beloved, is that not worth commemorating? That you and I have a one-time sacrifice for all of our many sins in and through Jesus Christ. He has completed what we could never complete. So let's always commemorate. And why do we need to remember? Why do we need to commemorate? Because we are forgetful. I know I am at least. I mean, sin fogs our vision. Things distract us from the gospel. We get busy, right? Life happens. That's why it's important that we gather to have a covenant renewal reminder. So let's always take time to commemorate the new covenant that God has made with those who are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Number four, the Lord's Supper is a means of proclamation. Proclamation. A lot of proclaiming going on now, right? Proclamation, we see this in 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the club, this cup, you proclaim. Somebody underlined proclaim. In proclaim. You proclaim the Lord's death. So Paul says that whenever you do this, you are doing something. Like, 
once again, we're not just going through the motions in the observance of the Lord's Supper. You're doing something. And what are you doing? You're making a proclamation. You're proclaiming the Lord's death. This is another reason why the church does this when we are gathered. It isn't a secretive act. It's hard to proclaim something when you're all alone. It's hard to declare, proclaim the good news that's happened to you if you don't have anyone to tell it to. Paul assumes that unbelievers will be in these gatherings. We should too. Unbelievers are welcome to join us. We want you here. We want non-Christians gathered with us on Sundays, especially Sundays that we observe the Lord's Supper. We want you to see us take this little bread and this little cup and do this kind of weird thing, right, that looks really strange, like what are they doing? Why are they doing this? We want you to see that. We want you to, Paul seems to think that this would be something that people would watch and would ask questions about. And what happens is the symbolic meal heralds the glorious gospel story, and it also builds up those that are in the gospel. One Puritan pastor once put it like this. The Lord's Supper is a visible sermon. It's a visible sermon. We get to watch something take place. He says, for as often, uh, some do it weekly, some do it monthly, some do it quarterly, some do it yearly. I don't see any specific instructions on how often the frequency is. Uh, we observe it monthly. But you proclaim the Lord's death. And he says, then what? Until he comes. So number five, the Lord's Supper is a means of anticipation. It's a means of anticipation. Brothers and sisters, Christ is coming back. Amen? Amen. He is coming back. Hebrews reminds us again in chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, praise be to God, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So we proclaim his death. We say, look at what Christ has done. Look, see, see the, the body, the blood. The gospel is real. We say, like, there is salvation in Jesus Christ. And we say, he is coming again. And we look to that with anticipation. When we observe the Lord's Supper in our liturgy, we make this point very clear, right? We even point out Matthew 26, 29, where Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What a beautiful promise that is. Christian, you are going to feast with Jesus. You are going to 
look upon his face and feast with the king, the one who gave his life for you. So when we come to the table, we not only look back at Christ's death, we also look forward to his return. We look forward with anticipation to the eternal meal we will have with Jesus for eternity. The Lord's Supper is a means of proclamation and anticipation. Number six, finally, we see the Lord's Supper is a means of self-examination. Self-examination. 27 through 34, I'll read this. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Now, let me just make a point very clear. Paul is not saying that, that someone can somehow make themselves worthy to participate in the Lord's Supper. Okay, we are, we are all unworthy of the blessing of salvation. There, there's no amount of confession that can take place that will make us worthy of the blessing of salvation. That is only, solely, an act of God that changes the desperate heart that is rebellious to him and makes it new, then we look at God. We desire God. We are saved. We're converted. We're regenerated. There's only an act of God. What Paul does instruct here and what we should do is ensure that we are not harboring sin and dishonoring the table. We're not harboring sin. We're not dishonoring what has taken place. And Paul here is speaking to sin in context towards others. He's speaking to some disunity in the family of God. But I wouldn't say it's limited to that by even this passage and many others. I mean, even disunity is often birthed from the sin of what? Selfishness. It has roots in pride. Oftentimes, it's arrogance even that causes disunity in the body of Christ. So we can assert the implications are that we should not approach the Lord's Supper in a hypocritical way. Basically saying, in other words, like, I will pretend that I am a Christian, that I'm one of Jesus' people. I am a, a blood-bought, saved Christian, but I'm living in a sinful way. 
So, so really, this atonement that I'm celebrating, this death, has no implications on me because I will not let go of my sin. Paul says, you can't do that. And when this happens, when someone approaches the Lord's Supper with a heart of hypocrisy, Paul says you're drinking judgment on yourself. He says some are becoming ill, some are even dying. Now, is that always the case? Can we connect uh, every sickness and death to someone that maybe isn't approaching the Lord's Supper in the right way? No. But I would say that we can infer from this passage that it was the case then, and it could be the case sometimes now. This is the New Testament church here. But what is important is that before we observe the meal, we take time to talk to God. We acknowledge anything that comes to our mind, whether that's sin against another Sin that we just cannot let go, and we just say, no, I want to hold this one here. God, I'm not going to talk about this one. Quit trying to bring it up. I'm going to leave it there. We acknowledge whatever the Lord would be so kind to bring to our minds. We confess those sins, and then, right, it's not just a solemn confession. Then what do we do? We celebrate the forgiveness we have in Jesus. Amen. We celebrate. Confess. We celebrate. Thomas Watson once said, the more bitterness we taste in sin, the more sweetness we shall taste in Christ. That is the goal of self-examination, right? Not that we somehow clean ourselves up so we can get ourselves to God and say, all right, here I am, did did pretty good this week, you know? No, no, no. Anything good in us is all because of the Holy Spirit. God working in us for our good and his glory. There's much more that can be said about the Lord's Supper, but time does not allow for that this morning. Just here's my prayer. I pray that one, I pray that one, we will see the richness of the Lord's Supper in ways far above and far beyond simply going through the motions. My prayer that CCF would be a church that takes the Lord's Supper serious. I pray that we would not just rush through the Lord's Supper just to carry on to our lunch plans. It'll be just something that we just do once a month. First Sunday of the month, no kids are going to be in there and we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. No, we should prepare for the meal ahead. Our prayer is that we would not let distractions of this world prevent us from seeing and enjoying the richness of Christ as we remember the salvation we have because of his sacrifice. And that the Lord's Supper, that little stale wafer 
And that little cup that we use, it's kind of hard to get off. You try not to get off of you, get all over you, would be a little bit sweeter. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us. It is amazing that you would save any of us. I know I speak for myself very, very clearly. Lord, I am lost without you. And the Lord's Supper is a beautiful time to be reminded of your kindness you have shown to us through Christ. So, Lord, help us to grow in our understanding. Help us grow in our admiration. And Father, would you help us to grow in our love for one another, putting others above ourselves. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.